we're going to read from Isaiah uh, chapter 52, and we're going to start at verse 13, and we'll end up in uh, uh, chapter 53, and we'll go to verse 3. See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being, and his form marred beyond human likeness. So he will sprinkle many nations, and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told, they will see, and for what they have not heard, they will understand. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Christianity is, uh, is based on facts and uh, historical events and uh, things that are true. And uh, some of these facts are evident for all to see. And one of the great facts on which Christianity is based is that we have numerous authors, over 30, and uh, over spread out over 1,400 years, all collected in one book. And uh, there is a surprising um, congruence on uh, what they have to say. They're talking about the same subject, about God and how we can have a relationship with him. And uh, Jesus Christ comes to be the center of all of those writings. And uh, that is amazing. And uh, different than uh, any other religion. And no other religion has writing material spread out over 1,500 years by so many different writers, and yet uh, all coming together to speak about the same thing. And uh, so today, uh, this is about one of those special passages in the Bible, uh, Isaiah 52 and 53, uh, speaking about Jesus Christ and his suffering, and uh, I think you will enjoy it today. Um, if you go to the next slide for me, please, Lynn. Someone asked in a church service a few months ago about the Dead Sea Scrolls. So the largest Dead Sea Scroll was a scroll of the book of Isaiah. And it was one of the first scrolls that was found. And this is a copy of that scroll. And uh, this is actually the passage we're looking at today from that scroll. This was written in 125 BCE. Okay, 125 years before Christ was born, this scroll was copied. And uh, this was the largest of all the Dead Sea Scrolls. Uh, they found 20 different Isaiah scrolls in the Dead Sea Scrolls, and they found six commentaries on the book of Isaiah on the, in, in, in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Uh, we always wondered, how accurate is our Hebrew Bible? Because the oldest Hebrew Bible we had was from about 1000 a, a A.D., called the Leningrad Codex, it called Leningrad because that's where it was found, that's where it's housed, the Russians had it, and that was the Hebrew Bible that is the basis of the King James Version, the NIV. All the versions we have today are based on that. We always wondered, like, how good, how good was the copying? And then we found this scroll that was uh, 1,125 years older 
and they were amazed at how accurate and how close they were. Uh, this older Hebrew had some different spellings, but for the most part, that uh, text from 1000 A.D. agreed with the one that they found in the Dead Sea Scrolls. If you go to the next slide, this is just a little closer look. Now, this is, this is handwritten. So uh, this is a scribe who is very careful with how he's writing. You notice all the letters are about the same size. They read from left to right. And uh, I guess that's all I need to say about it. If you go to the next slide, this is the one Leningrad Codex and uh, a reproduction of it. And uh, you can see that this also looks like it was done by a computer or by a typewriter. This was also handwritten. Uh, the Hebrew scribes, the Jewish scribes, very careful in the way they copied and the way they, they wrote. Keep going to the next. Um, so this is a poem. And uh, Isaiah is recording his sermons in poetry. And uh, your Hebrew Bible, we often start in chapter 53, verse 1. That is a terrible chapter division. Okay? Isaiah did not write with verses and chapters. Those were added much, much later. And uh, the, whoever did Isaiah 52, 53 did a bad job. <laughs> he put the division in a wrong place. When I was a kid, I had to memorize Isaiah 53, and uh, unfortunately, I missed the first three verses of that wonderful poem. Um, good thing I got my Bible. I can see it. Uh, notice uh, the outline of the poem. Every three verses is a stanza. So first of all, the unperceived exaltation of the servant. That's verses 13 through 15. Then verses 1 through 3, the rejection and unattractiveness of the servant. Letter C, the vicarious atonement of the servant. That means the servant um, is a sacrifice in our place, a substitute, vicarious. The oppression and death of the servant, verses 7 through 9. And the ultimate success of the servant, verses 10 through 12. Let's go to the next screen there, Lynn. This is the way I say it. Yahweh speaks of his servant. So the Lord is speaking in the first three verses. And he speaks of the servant's unexpected exaltation. In other words, it seems, it seems weird that he could be hammered and broken and beaten and yet be successful and exalted. That's a strange combination. Verses 1 through 3, the prophet then speaks and describes the servant's rejection and humble appearance. Then letter C, the prophet describes the servant's vicarious suffering. Verses 7 through 9, the prophet describes the servant's rejection and humble appearance. And then finally again, the Lord speaks, Yahweh acts and speaks regarding his servant, primarily exaltation. So you've got uh, 15 verses uh, five stanzas, three verses per stanza, and it's got a chiastic structure. That means it turns back on itself. The point to the structure is the middle is the most important thing, and that is the part that speaks about Jesus Christ dying in our place. 
Okay, now today we're just going to cover the first six verses. Next week, the second nine verses. Go to the next slide. So verses 13 through 15, Yahweh speaks of his servant. A surprising exaltation is eventually recognized. Go to the next slide, please. See, my servant will act wisely. Another way to say that. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Hebrew poetry, the second line, kind of repeats the first line, and that is the poetry. Okay, you're supposed to see the beauty in the way he uses language to repeat himself and advance his thought. So my servant will act wisely. And he wants you to see that. See, or behold, my servant will act wisely. Pay attention. It's important. Notice he calls him my servant. This is the person who's going to accomplish what I want him to do. And he's going to serve me. And uh, he calls him my. He's taking personal ownership. God is saying, this is me that's doing this. And he will act wisely. He will do everything I want him to do. He will do it in such a way that he brings great success and he will do it well and perfectly. He will be raised, lifted up, highly exalted, piling up the language, saying the same thing. He could have just said he'll be lifted up. Could have left it at that. No, he wants you to get it. He is going to succeed and it's going to be wonderful and he will be exalted and glorified. And of course, this is true of Jesus Christ. You read your New Testament. New Testament tells you everything about that. Jesus Christ being lifted up on the cross. And strangely, being lifted up on the cross is the way he is most glorified and exalted and magnified. As you see him on the cross, you see Christ at his best, most wonderful. But the exaltation goes on. He doesn't leave him in the, de- he doesn't leave him in the ground. He brings him up out of the tomb and declares by resurrecting him that he is Lord and Messiah. He's the Christ. That's exaltation. But of course, it doesn't just stop there. Forty days after his resurrection, what happens? Okay, every Christian knows the answer to that. (laughs) Or you should. Forty days after the resurrection, what happens? The ascension. Lifted up and exalted. And where is he right now? Sounds a little confused. (laughs) At the right hand of God. He's at the right hand of God. The place of preeminence. Ultimate exaltation. Beautiful. Isaiah's talking about this. See my servant. Look at him. Phenomenal. How does he get there? It's quite the story. Go to the next slide just as there were many who were appalled at him. He describes this appalling with two more uh, sentences that are synonymous, saying the same thing a different way. There were many who were appalled at him. His appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being. His form marred beyond human likeness. Now, I think this is figure of speech. This is poetry, right? So we're using figures of speech to describe something. 
And he says, you could look at the servants and you could look at him and you go, I don't even think he's human. It looks terrible. And I think that would be our reaction to seeing someone hanging on a cross. We would see someone hanging on a cross, beaten and bruised and blood running down the face, maybe face caved in a little bit from being hit, back torn to pieces, beaten so much that he could barely stand and could barely lift his cross. And if you went by that cross, you would see someone hanging there, and you, would, you, you wouldn't even be sure that it was living until it moved. And then when it moved, you would go, oh, it's a human being that has been beaten to a pulp and left to die. I think that's what that verse is describing. His appearance so disfigured beyond that of any human being, using hyperbole to describe just the brokenness of someone hanging on a cross. My brother was a firefighter, and they had an accident once at the Sarnia Airport, and an airplane went into the ground. And he was one of the responders. And I said, well, what was that like seeing a dead body? And his response was, if you didn't know any better, you wouldn't even know it was a dead body. So broken. So crushed. That's what, that's what Isaiah is saying. So disfigured, it's appalling. And you put those two sentences together, my servant will be exalted, and you would be appalled at his appearance. And uh, the, 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 the figure so disfigured beyond that of any human being. And you go, well, how do those two things go together? It's hard to figure that out if you go to the next slide. So he will sprinkle many nations, and kings will shut their mouths because of him. That word used there for sprinkle is often used for the high priest sprinkling blood on the altar. Well, how does it work that he brings about such great success? Is because through the very process of being beaten beyond human recognition, that is what he uses to sprinkle many nations. By the way, you can still see a high priest. I mean, a, you can still see a priest in the Catholic Church sprinkling people. Have you seen that? Sprinkling with the holy water. Now, I've never been splashed, but... It's a, it's, a, it's a rite meant to symbolize cleansing and purity. Well, here, the servant sprinkles many nations through his very disfigurement and marring, and kings shut their mouths. Appalled. Wow, look at that. Amazing. Now, by the way, we are part of the many nations. Wonderful. Isaiah predicts that, that the message of Jesus Christ and the gospel of the servant of Yahweh is for all the world. We're seeing that today, all the world. Just got an article today about the number of women in the, in the country of Iran giving themselves to the Lord Jesus Christ. Striking revival among women, women especially. They're seeing visions of Jesus Christ and Christ is appearing to them and they're giving their lives to Christ, and they're telling others about Christ, even though 
they are abused at home and they're beaten and they're downtrodden in their society, yet they are transforming their society by coming to Jesus Christ. But what they were not told, they will see. And what they have not heard, they will understand. I love the the Apostle Paul quotes this. By the way, these passages are quoted a number of times in the New Testament. I would have to look in my notes to see them all. We won't have time for that. But Paul says the reason why he takes the gospel to other countries is because of the promise of this verse. What they were not told, they will see. And so he says, I've got to tell them. Because this verse promises they will see it. They will come to Christ. That's why we give people the gospel. That's why we give people Bibles. That's why we send out missionaries. It will be successful. What they have not, what they were not told, they will see. What they have not heard, they will understand. Okay, next slide, please, Lynn. Next three verses. The prophet describes the servant's rejection and humble appearance. The suffering is offensive, and people are turned away by it. Now let's look at the text. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Well, that's a question. Who has believed our message? What's the answer to that? Nobody. Okay. Hypothetical question. Who's No, back, back, back. Who has believed our message? Nobody believes it. To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Uh, nobody gets it. Now, notice message in the second line. I think, what is the message? It's the arm of the Lord. That's the message. It's figure of speech. Does God have arms? God doesn't have arms. He's a spirit. The arm of the Lord is a figure of speech. And it's a figure of speech for what he's doing. So God is doing something. Our message is what God is going to do. Who knows what God is going to do? And who believes it? Uh, I like to explain it this way. Um, when Jesus Christ was born and lived his life, how many of them thought the Messiah should suffer? Nobody. Nobody thought. Jesus kept saying to them, the scriptures say the Messiah must suffer. And they're going, no, we don't think so. <laughs> we don't believe it. When Jesus told Peter that he was going to suffer, Peter takes him aside and goes, no. Well, Jesus, you've got to stop talking crazy talk. That's not what's going to happen. They didn't believe it. When Jesus was hanging on the cross, how many people were there worshiping, thinking this is the most wonderful thing this is the love of God for us. Nobody was thinking that. I think that they were thinking, what's happened? God's plan has fallen apart. What are we going to do now? The one that we put our hopes in is dead. We don't know what to do. I think that's what they were thinking. One guy got it. The guy beside him on the cross. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. He saw it. Nobody else. Who's believed our message? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? People don't get it. By the way, they still don't get it today. That the most wonderful thing that God did for humanity and the greatest way he loved humanity 
was to put his son on the cross. People say, yeah, God is love, but really what they mean is he's loving as long as everything goes well for me, as long as I don't have any problems. He solved our greatest problems, met our greatest needs when he put his son on the cross. Isaiah says, who's believed it? Nobody. This is quoted a couple of times in the New Testament to explain why the Jewish people do not embrace Jesus Christ as their Messiah. Unbelievable message. Next slide. He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. The servant is going to grow up so that he seems to be insignificant and his background is going to be obscure. He's going to grow up out of poverty. Of course, that is Jesus Christ. He grows up in a town, Nazareth, and uh, there are some people in the world that don't believe Nazareth ever existed. That's how obscure it was. It would be kind of like saying, I'm from Croton. Jim Hale, is that where you're from? How many of you have been to Croton? Oh, a few of you. A lot of you have been there and you don't even realize it. (laughs) That's how insignificant Croton is. Well, Jesus was from the Croton of his day. Nobody talks about Croton. Nobody talked about Nazareth. That, that, that is dry ground. Of course, he comes from a royal family. How many people cared about Joseph? Nobody. That was yesterday's news. That was just the stump of David. Insignificant. I was going to say something else here. I can't remember what I was going to say. A senior moment. I suppose you should read your notes. Um, I remember what I was going to say. It's funny, it's funny in the news that we had uh, a big scandal in the States when a number of uh, wealthy individuals were paying to get their children into good schools. And uh, the most recent scandal, though, is that now people are trying to figure out how is it that politicians and billionaires get their children into these same schools? Are all of their children really that smart? And of course the answer is uh, no. They get into the school because of who they are and their power and their money. And that's why they have those advantages. The servant of the Lord will have none of that. No advantages. No money behind him. No big names. Nobody's applauding him. Nobody, nobody, nobody's helping. Uh, he is a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. People were not flocking to Jesus because he was charismatic. Charismatic leaders today can have a huge following. They weren't flocking to Jesus because of his charisma, because of the way he looked. In fact, nowhere in the scriptures do you get a description of how he looks. You don't know what color his hair was or how long it was. You don't know how tall he was or or how athletic he was or was not. You don't know that. People would not be attracted to him because of those things. In fact, I surmise that in his day, he would not be the most attractive. He was a working person calluses on his hands, uh, maybe a little beaten because of the physical labor that he had to do. 
as opposed to someone who could live a pampered life and uh, take care of themselves and groom themselves well. Jesus was not that. Go to the next slide. And he was despised and rejected by mankind, not only because of his humble roots, not only because of his lack of beauty, but because he was a man of suffering and familiar with pain. And uh, people don't want to be around suffering and pain. We avoid it. And we avoid people who are always hurting. And so Jesus was avoided. And of course, while he was on the cross, he was avoided and hated and despised and rejected. Finally, like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. And the religious leaders, of course, as they looked at Jesus, they thought thought so little of him that they wanted to kill him. And then because they could kill him, they thought even less of him because uh, he was less than nothing to them, hated him. I always find it funny that today in our world, people still hate Jesus and despise him. Oh, they'll say good things about him, good things about his teaching, but try to tell somebody about Jesus. I'm a follower of Jesus. Ooh, you're a, you're, you're a kook. <laughs> if you're a spiritual person, that's good. A follower of Jesus, oh, that's bad, because he's still held in low esteem. I think he's held in low esteem because of this. He was God's servant who accomplished God's plan by being beaten, abused, and dying in our place. And maybe that's part of the reason why he's so hated. I have to face my own need and my own sin if I'm going to embrace and believe in Jesus Christ. And I won't do it. I'm not that bad. And Jesus is in their face about, we need a Savior. And the only way that could happen is if he's abused. Uh, Next week, we'll continue the poem, verses 4 through 12. Let's look to the Lord in prayer.